You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. If I have a headache, I reach for my over-the-counter pain medication, I read the recommended dosage, and I take it accordingly. But I don't often stop to think about how that dose was established or how I even know that this medication is safe. Medical innovations, large and small, from how much ibuprofen I can take at one time all the way to standards of care for cancer treatment, are discovered with the help of clinical trials. On this episode of the Women's Health Cast, I talked to Laurel Rice about clinical trials, how they're funded, the steps it takes to get a trial off the ground, and why it is so important that researchers include diverse populations in their studies. Dr. Rice is a gynecologic oncologist and chair of the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. But before we get to the interview, I want to share a great medical education opportunity coming up. On March 1st, if you're near the Wisconsin area, you are invited to join a diverse group of stakeholders and practitioners to learn about the latest evidence-based strategies in contraceptive care at the Wisconsin Contraceptive Care Summit in Madison. In particular, you don't want to miss hands-on training in long-acting reversible contraception placement and removal like IUDs and implants. You can learn more about the Wisconsin Contraceptive Care Summit at obgyn.wisc.edu. Now, on to the interview. Today, I'm going to talk to Dr. Laurel Rice about the importance of representation in clinical trials. Dr. Rice, thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I wanted to learn a little bit more about clinical trials from you and especially why you know why they should be important to kind of the average medical consumer and why it's important that a broader population base is brought in as participants in these trials. So to start with what is a clinical trial? Well, a clinical trial and there's several different kinds, but Let me preface uh, that description by saying the way in which we determine if certain medications, certain operations actually work and improve a patient's life, not just longevity, but quality, is by clinical trials. Because a clinical trial is designed based on the number of patients and the question that's being asked to answer the question in a statistically sound fashion. Uh, When it comes to caring for patients, it's not okay for it to be anecdotal, meaning, oh, I heard that kind of work, let's try that. That, that That's not how we improve the lives of women of Wisconsin or patients in general. So clinical trials in terms of developing new therapies and improving health care in this state and in this country, really, it's the holy grail. Is it fair to say that they're kind of... um the, the necessary steps that help establish standards of care for different things? Well said. That's exactly right. Uh, without clinical trials, there's really little, little to no support for patients to really feel like they're getting the best possible care available. And once a clinical trial that is well-designed is held and executed and the results are in, we're able to establish the standard of care. How do they happen? What, I guess, is the first step of of starting a trial? Well, there's a tremendous amount of oversight of clinical trials, as well there should be. But the very first step 
is having the question or the hypothesis, hypothesis the same thing. Meaning like, for example, does this chemotherapy work better than that chemotherapy? Or should we be performing this operation or this operation? So having the question is the very, very first step. And after that, there is a significant amount of time devoted to developing the clinical trial. And again, there's different kinds. If you're comparing and contrasting two treatments, that's one thing. Or if you're doing, say, a phase one trial where you're just trying to figure out, can we give this drug to a human being? Is it safe? And um, so it depends on the type of clinical trial. But again, what you need is a, a, a very sound, methodical approach to the statistics, how many patients you need. It needs to take into consideration all the different safety aspects. And you really, um, at the University of Wisconsin and basically everywhere in the United States to do a clinical trial, you need institutional review board approval. And what that means is it goes through, we have a committee, as all institutions do, that look at how the clinical trial is set up. Is it safe? Will it answer the question? Um, is it sound from a, a methodological point of view? And after that is approved by the IRB, it can move forward. The other very important part for clinical trials is the funding. Clinical trials are expensive. And um, to do them properly requires support. Where does that support come from? Well, uh, depending on what branch of medicine you're in, there's um, governmental support through the NIH. Or for GYN oncology, the gynecologic oncology group, there's industry support, meaning with uh, pharmaceutical companies, for example, if it's drug development, with the appropriate conflict of interest forms and signed, et cetera. There can be departmental support or institutional support, depending on, again, what type of clinical trial it is. So there are multiple different areas to get support, but having equal access to clinical trials really depends on support that appreciates the fact that uh, clinical trials are important to all. You mentioned um, institutional review boards, and so they're kind of looking at the the human side, the human subject side of, of doing a trial like this. Um, what other protections are in place for patients who might be participating? Well, the IRB is the first step, and then, but that IRB is very complicated, importantly so. For example, the consent form for patients has to be at the appropriate level with the appropriate detail so that patients understand the risks and the potential benefits. That's one of the hardest things to um, really successfully accomplish uh, with, a, with a population that's uh, multifaceted, both in terms of language, age, level of um, education. So the consent process um, is extremely important, and patients need to be fully informed about every aspect of the clinical trial. Um, and that, and if a patient feels 
like they're not fully informed, they shouldn't enroll or they should continue to ask questions. I know that historically it was pretty common for trials to, um, to not recruit women as, as participants or to kind of exclude them from the, the patient population. Why? Why was that? Well, that goes back many decades, um, pre, almost preceding birth control, because the issue is um, for clinical trials that involve medications or surgery, if a woman is unknowingly pregnant, the potential for um, harm to her and the fetus um, is real. Um, so part of the initial reticence to enroll women was based simply on that. Then um, with the development of effective birth control and effective pregnancy testing, that mitigated that concern. Now, since the development of birth control, it's fair to say that um, the funding for research around women's health, either reproductive or otherwise, is considerably less than the funding for research as it relates to men. Many reasons for that. Um, the present chief of the NIH, Francis Collins, has been addressing that for several years in terms of not only women enrolled in clinical trials, but women conducting research, the scientific community. Um, slow progress, but um, full acknowledgement of the issue and attention being paid to it. And the reason, there's many reasons why it's important, but women and men have differences in terms of drug metabolism, um, et cetera. There's reasons to have clinical trials that singularly involve women or clinical trials with women who are equally represented. What about other underrepresented minorities, I guess? Can you tell me about the importance of recruiting really, really diverse patient populations for trials? Well, it's to have clinical trials that don't translate to the entire population is is means that it's not a good clinical trial. You want to have a trial that has patients in it that represent the entire population of the United States, again, because of differences, not only biological differences, but difference in uh, the social determinants of health, et cetera. And the United States has a complicated history of clinical trials for African-Americans specifically. Uh, there was a study done in Alabama, the Tuskegee syphilis study, that was conducted in a completely unethical manner. So the distrust that exists, um, specifically with African Americans and probably Hispanics as well in terms of clinical trials, is, is real. And um, so the onus is on us as investigators and clinicians to understand that and, and um, work even harder to build the trust and include all different groups into our clinical trials. I'm curious about another area of research and support, um, and I think this is one that probably resonates really deeply with you. Um, I know that funding for gynecologic cancer is um, Kind of, it's kind of underfunded compared to other types of cancers. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, oh, probably about six or seven years ago, 
the National Cancer Institute reorganized itself around clinical trials, and <coughs> G1 Oncology was um, included in a group, including two other cancer groups. And basically, there's a 90% reduction in enrollment in clinical trials for G1 oncologists, which is just remarkable, remarkably bad, actually. And what's happened in the last few years is there's been a reorganization um, for the entire field of G1 oncology about improving that situation, including multiple trips to the NCI and um, patient and uh, governmental improvement in awareness. And it is paying off. Um, I think that um, there's tremendous room for improvement. We're still underfunded. There was a paper published just last month that points to the fact that clinical trials for male cancers are greater than that for women's when you consider funding to lethality, which is a fancy say, way of saying how much money is spent per cancer death. I think there's a tremendous room, amount of room for improvement, and I anticipate that that charge will continue. What do you wish in general that more people understood about the importance of clinical trials, I guess, as they relate to medical developments and the future of our health? I think we, and this is probably universal for clinical trials, not just women's health or G1 oncology, uh, because about five, say, for example, all adults with cancer, only about 5% are enrolled in clinical trials. Advancing the field, finding more cures, improving the lives of our patients can only be done with clinical trials. And all of the clinical trial work starts in the laboratory. You can't even get to a clinical trial without significant research in the basic science arena to develop the drugs or in the operator or wherever to develop new techniques, um, new instrumentation in the operating room. So what I would hope that the population would understand is that their health depends on it. And advocacy around clinical trials to have a real impact in, D in Washington, D.C. in terms of federal funding requires all of us to step up and have a voice, patients primarily and physicians as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Rice. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. On the next Women's Health Cast, I'll talk to Ryan McDonald about cesarean deliveries. C-sections are one of the most common surgical procedures performed in the U.S. In the United States, about 21% of births are C-sections. I'll ask Dr. McDonald what's driving the increase in C-sections, what the experience is like, and why he sometimes recommends cesarean delivery for his patients. Women's Health Cast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's Health Cast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISC-OBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening. <laughs>